What does the Bible really say about abortion? Spoken by Pastor Sunita Pontan. Good to see you all this morning, whether you're here in person or online. And wow, we have a lot of young people, <laughs> amen? That is a wonderful thing. So it is so great to see them all going to youth group. Um, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so good. God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that our eyes have seen and all that our ears have already heard, the prayers that were lifted, the worship that I pray was pleasing to you, God. And now, God, um, we come now to open up your word together. And so, God, I have prayed and I have had others praying for me. And Lord, I have prepared, but you must preach this word. And I have studied your word, God, but you must send your Holy Spirit to do the work that only you can do. And God, I have written words on paper, but would you write them on our hearts that we might become closer to you, drawn closer to you and closer to your word, and we could discover this together. And now, oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's children said, amen. amen, amen, amen. So, good morning. And there are only a few topics more controversial and divisive as what we are to be talking about today. We will attempt to answer the question, what does the Bible really say about abortion? Now, I need you guys to understand that we planned this sermon series last year before we knew that the Supreme Court would come out of a ruling, and only in God's providence did he uh, have this sermon scheduled within weeks of uh, the Dobbs ruling, and I have to tell you that I was praying that the Lord would send a snowstorm today. <laughs> um, but that did not happen, so here we are. Uh, and so we chose the sermon series, What Does the Bible Really Say About? Because we want to remind us to go back to the Bible. We are people of faith, and this is our word. And if we want to know what God has to say, we have to go back to the word, and we have to remind ourselves constantly that this is not just a reference point, it is the reference point. And this is where we start our conversations. And so we want to move closer to the Bible because the further away we move from the Bible, the more we are influenced by the word, the world, excuse me. So because God is the only one who is sovereign, we look to him and to his word for wisdom. Now let me begin by saying that I approach this topic with an incredible amount of humility. Acknowledging that while I am a woman, I am not a mother and I have never been pregnant. I am the product of two parents who lovingly created me, they wanted me, and they were able to provide for me and my brother both financially and emotionally. So in many ways I am removed from this conversation and I have been protected because of my choices and God's divine providence from ever being in a personal situation where I have had to decide whether or not to have an abortion. I recognize the privileged place from where I stand. 
but I am also a Christian and a minister of the gospel. And like you, I strive to live my life in accordance with God's word and to form my personal beliefs around the word of God. And like many of you, I seek to know what does God have to say about some of the things that are happening in our world. And I'm also a voter. And I believe my civic responsibility calls me to be engaged and informed for myself and for others. I want to acknowledge in the congregation, whether you're here in person or online, those of you who find this topic particularly sensitive and triggering or hard to hear. Some of you have been incredibly brave and have shared your stories with me. And for that, I am grateful. I acknowledge those of you who have had an abortion for whatever reason, those who were forced to have one, those who chose not to, and those who are the products of unwanted pregnancies. And I acknowledge the men who are often left out of this conversation. Those of you who asked a partner to have an abortion, agreed to it, paid for it, or feel as though you were robbed of that choice. I hold you in my heart and I bring all of you with me as much as I can into this sermon today. As we move into this topic together, I wanna to say that I will not use the terms pro-life and pro-choice. I find them incendiary and divisive because once we begin labeling people, we stereotype them and we caricature them. Pro-life and pro-choice are political labels. And we as people of faith don't seek to put God into political labels, we seek to allow God to speak. And so in saying that, perhaps we are a bit over-promising with the sermon today. It is difficult to know what the Bible really says about abortion because in many ways the Bible is silent on the issue. If you go to Bible Gateway and you Google abortion, you put it in the search bar, you're not gonna find that word in there. Therefore, so we have to construct a theology based upon what the Bible does tell us. And it's also impossible to discuss abortion in a vacuum as if it is devoid of our American cultural context. It's, imp it's impossible. Abortion and how we know and understand it is deeply rooted in our history and our culture in America. There were times in our nation's history when abortions were legal and times where they were not. There were restrictions, not just on when an abortion could occur, but who could have one. So we come to this conversation as the theologian Karl Barth would say, with a Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And so the question on everyone's mind is, is abortion sin? And in the absence of a clear directive from the Bible, how do we construct a theology of abortion? What might God have to say about this? And because the Bible is not specifically clear on the subject of abortion as we know it, we have to rely on the text that we do have and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Bible speaks to the case of men having sex with virgins and it requires men to take care of those women, to marry them. 
The Bible speaks to cases of miscarriage, but not to terminating a pregnancy intentionally. It does not speak to what to do if a woman is at risk of death because of a pregnancy. And Jesus never speaks of abortion. So we look to the biblical text and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to understand the character of God in the fullness of the word, both what we have in the written word and in the incarnate word of Jesus Christ. And when we read the Bible, we find that God is the author of life. He is the giver of life, the sustainer of life. He grants abundant life through Jesus Christ, and he offers us eternal life when we believe in his son, Jesus. He desires for us to flourish in this life. We see that death is a natural occurrence, but God grieves over murders and unjust killings. We see that from the beginning with Cain and Abel. But there is more. There's more to this topic. So if you have your Bibles, and I want you to keep it open with you, whether it's in you know, a, a physical Bible or your phone, turn with me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, in my opinion, is one of the most beautifully poetic and theologically powerful chapters in the Bible. And we're not going to go through every verse, but I want you to read it when you get home and just sit with it. It is Hebrew poetry written by King David. And unlike some of the other Psalms, we don't have a story behind it. Rather, this is David writing about his experience with God and what he has come to know about God. This is one of the most personal Psalms we see described, not just in relationship to like all of his people or like the nation of Israel, but we see God in relationship with us as individuals. God has an intimate personal relationship with each one of us, his children. And what's so powerful about this Psalm is that it reminds us that the awesomeness of God does not prevent him from being in relationship with us as individuals. Understanding this creates the backdrop for how we think about abortion. So turn with me to Psalm 139. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4, and we're going to go through a couple of verses. Psalm 139, 1 through 4. Here we see that God is an omniscient God, meaning that he is all-knowing. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. This is the omniscient God, the all-knowing God. God knows David, the psalmist and writer, and he knows us perfectly. In fact, the Bible says that God knows us better than we know ourselves. God knows our every action, our every undertaking, and the manner in which we pursue it. God even knows our thoughts before they are fully crystallized, or what we're going to say before we actually even say it. God knows our circumstances, and he knows the choices that are before us. Our relationship with God is personal. It is not political. It is not the subject of Gallup polls or surveys. God has an individual relationship with each one of his children, and he knows us intricately and intimately. Amen. God knows the choices that men and women face when a pregnancy occurs. But God is also omnipresent, meaning that he is everywhere present. Look at verses 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. 
If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. There is no hiding from God because God is everywhere. Now to a person who perceives God as punitive, this is very scary. But to those of us who know that God loves us, and I hope you do, this is actually very comforting. God's relationship with us is so intimate because he loves us that much. He is so in love with his creation that he, can, he cares to be concerned about every detail of our lives. God promises to be with us. And that means that God is with the woman who chose or was forced to have an abortion. And he is with the man who suggested it or paid for it. And he is with the woman who chose to maintain a pregnancy. There is no place that we can go that God is not there, even in our choices. Look at verses 6 through 11 and you'll see something interesting. You'll see some interesting language. The psalmist writes, if I go. This suggests a choice. He understands that our relationship with God is one grounded in choice. God gives us free will. God gave us free will. We see it from the beginning with Adam and Eve. They had a choice. And God does not take that away from us. He respects the choice he has given us. But God has standards. And he desires that his children live and choose according to his standards. He wants us to choose him and he wants us to choose life. And verses eight through nine are especially important. If we go to the heaven or to the depths, meaning the realm of the dead, God will be with us. They are the extremes, the vertical extremes. And if we go to the wings of the dawn, meaning all the way to the east or to the far side of the sea, all the way to the west, God will be with us. Those are the horizontal extremes. Even those places that we think are too dark for God to be, God shows up there too. It's like light for him. God is with you. Whether you're here or there or here or there, God is with you. And God is not only omniscient, all-knowing, and he's not only omnipresent, everywhere present, God is also omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. And his power is demonstrated in creation. Look at verses 13 through 16. For you, were create, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knows us so thoroughly because he created us. We are intentionally created by God. Contrary to what we might think, our parents had something to do with it, but this was God's work. He created us. 
He knit us together in our mother's wombs. And we're not here, um, and, and not just here, but in other passages of scripture, we see God intimately involved in the conception of a child. We see God opening and closing wombs like with Sarah and Hannah and Rachel and Elizabeth. We are the work of his hands and God made us wonderful and fear inducing. That means that we are all inspiring. Each one of us is God's handiwork, his image alive in the world. And God even knows the circumstances of our conception. Verse 15 tells us that our frame was not hidden from God when we were made in the secret place, whether that was a site of pain or of violence or of love. God was there and he saw you, yet unformed. We are known by God from even before we are known by another man or woman. And we often hear the question asked, well, when does life begin? And it's not a bad question per se, but we often ask it because we're trying to avoid the, the issue of death. The Bible doesn't speak to when life begins. Rather, it reminds us that God forms us. It tells us that God cared enough about whatever was taking place on the inside of a woman's body to create it and to knit it together. That God cared enough to place his hands upon our formation and to be intricately involved in it. And that is a beautiful thing. And he has a purpose for each one of us. For example, he tells Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Every child has value and is loved by God. And so are all of us, including the mother who finds herself with an unwanted or unsafe pregnancy. God's ethic is for life. We see that in the deeply personal relationship he has with each one of his children. It is intimate and it is complex. It began before known creation. It expands all the days of our life, a time that only God knows. And God is with us through the expanse of our lives and he's journeying with us through each of the choices that we make. Whether that takes us to the highest of heights or the deepest of depths. And because God is the author of our lives and he's so deeply related to us, we cannot say that abortion is God's desire for the unborn or for his daughters. It is a sinful act. So if abortion is not God's desire, why isn't this the end of the message? Because as much as God loves and cares for the unborn, he loves and cares for his daughters. He knows the free will he has given us. This is not the end of the message because our theology has to live and it has to operate in this world and life is messy. You spend a few minutes reading your Bible and you will see a whole bunch of mess starting with Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. And then turn over and look at Tamar and Judah. We have to admit that there are challenges to living out this theology. We cannot assume the posture of an ostrich and, and bury our heads in the sand. And we can't just quote scripture and walk away because this is not a political issue. These are people's lives. 
These are important questions and challenges that we as Christians have to face together. We have to deal with the challenges of sin. Sin is a huge challenge in this conversation. We have to contend with the reality that women and girls are sexually assaulted. And while it does happen to men more common than we think, only as it pertains to women and girls can a pregnancy occur. What do we say to the women and the girls in this situation? God absolutely knows the circumstances of conception. He doesn't agree with it, with what happened if there was a sexual assault. Are we okay forcing the trauma of a pregnancy or the trauma of choosing not to have a pregnancy on a woman or a girl? What becomes of the mother? What becomes of the child? We have to deal with the health concerns for both a mother and the baby. The United States has one of the highest maternal health rates in any developing country. Sometimes a baby poses a health risk for the mother. It could be an ectopic pregnancy where the embryo sits in the fallopian tubes and as it grows, it could kill the mother. What do we say to the couple who has to choose between the life of the mom or the life of the child? It could be a genetic disorder that shortens the lifespan of the child or poses significant health risks to a child. What do we say to a couple who feels that they are ill-equipped to handle the emotional, physical, and financial challenges that come with a sick child or with watching a child die young? What does a flourishing life look like for that mom? and that child. Power. Unfortunately, we cannot discuss abortion without talking about power and control. Our nation has a history of using reproduction to control women and populations of people. During slavery, abortions were permitted for white women but not for black women, why? Because black women were considered property and the more babies they produced, the greater wealth their slave master attained. Not more than 50 years ago, abortion was linked to women's participation in the workplace. Abortion and contraception gave women more freedom to pursue careers and leave the home. And linked to this is the issue of decision-making. Who gets to decide what happens to a woman's body? Pregnancy and all the circumstances surrounding it is the most intimate of conditions. It is extremely private and yet so very public and something that everyone feels like we have the, the audacity or permission to weigh in on. Think about it. In no other situation do we feel that it is appropriate to pry into a woman's life like we do with a pregnancy. For good or for bad. And I'm guilty of it too. When does the baby do? What are you having? What are you going to name it? And I've never been pregnant, but I've done it and I've seen it happen. People touch you. <laughs> they feel permitted to touch you. We don't go around touching people's stomachs. But in pregnancy, right? Something so private becomes so public and sadly political. I can make suggestions, but I have no say in your private medical decisions. But only in the case of pregnancy do we think that our opinion matters 
And then we get to exert that power over another person. And there is the challenge of inequity. According to the Guttmacher Institute, in 2016, 59% of women who have abortions already have at least one child. That's surprising, right? These women who are choosing not to continue a pregnancy have made a determination that they cannot handle the responsibility, whether emotionally, physically, or financially, of having another child. Now, some of these women are wealthy or middle class, and they want to sustain a certain quality of life for themselves and their children. But others are poor. 75% of abortion patients are poor or low income. And there's a lot of hypocrisy wrapped up in arguments against abortion in the case of a poor woman. A poor woman is condemned for having a baby she cannot afford on one hand, and she's condemned for having a baby, uh, an abortion if she can't afford to have it. And the reality is that women of means will always have access to an abortion, whether legal or not. They have access to private medical care. They can travel to places where abortions are legal. Low-income women do not have these options. The pregnancy alone comes with expenses some women just cannot afford. These are burdens placed ex exclusively on women. And finally, there is the challenge of the emotional and spiritual consequences, consequences of the decision to have a child or not. The emotional and spiritual consequences for a mother and father can be devastating. And sadly, the church has only exacerbated it. We have heaped shame and guilt on both the woman who has an abortion and the woman who is an unwed mother. And we have excused the fathers. In the case of an abortion, there can be feelings of shame guilt, unresolved grief, feelings of inadequacy or low self-esteem, condemnation or unforgiveness. It may surprise you, but according to that same study, 54% of women who have abortions actually call themselves Christian. 17% of that 54%, 17% uh, consider themselves mainline Protestant. 13% are evangelical. And 24% are Catholic. Perhaps the bigger problem for the church is not why are women having abortions, but why don't Christian women feel safe enough to have their babies? Could it be the shame that we've placed on them? And this is why our theology can't just be theory. It must live. We have to live our theology. So because God is a lover of life, how then do we partner with God for the flourishing of life? How do we partner with God for the flourishing of life amidst all that's going on? First, we need to examine ourselves. We need to examine ourselves. On this issue especially, we need to wrestle with our own feelings and emotions and, and motives on this topic. How do we come to this issue? As a woman, as a man, as a person who's been pregnant, as one who's never been, whatever it might be, we have to be honest with ourselves and, come to, and, and that we come to this issue and every issue with our own experiences that bear upon it. 
And it's not right or wrong, it just is. When we look at Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24, David asked God to search his heart and to test him and to examine his anxious thoughts. He asked to be shown if there was any offensive way in him and to lead him in the way everlasting. It is a prayer for all of us to examine our hearts and our hearts' true devotion. How have you come to this sermon today? How do you feel about this issue? What is your motivation? Is it fear? Is it power? Is it love? Has the issue of abortion become an idol for you? Do your politics clash with your faith? And if so, which one is going to win out? I have to be honest with you that this issue unsettles me and causes me a lot of fear. I fear that in the church, the universal church's effort to prove to the world that abortion is sin, we have led ourselves to believe that there are degrees of sin in God's economy. And that's not true. All sin is equal before a holy God. And there is only one unforgivable sin. And that is the sin of attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to the works of the enemy. And I am afraid that women have become collateral damage because of our bad theology. I'm afraid that power and control can be such motivating factors. The Bible and the law have been weaponized for centuries. They've been used to condone and perpetuate slavery and the oppression of women, for example. The desire for power and to will control was also prevalent in Jesus' day. The Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus in part because he was gaining notoriety and favor among the people. He was encroaching on their power. So to stop him, they tried on numerous occasions to test him. They eventually crucified him, looking around, not just at the political landscape, but the religious landscape as well. Some of us have have to ask ourselves, are we motivated by saving a child's life or having access to political power? Has the subject of abortion become an idol, giving us access to political power at the expense of other people? Or are we motivated by love? In tears, a woman shared how she cannot condone abortion because she never wants a woman to feel the shame and the guilt that she carries. I've heard from men who can't imagine not having the option of an abortion when they've learned of the health risk of the pregnancy posed to their wives. Women have shared the burden of not mothering well because their child was unwanted. Men have shared the pain of not having a say in their partner's abortion. These men and women are motivated by love. Are we motivated by love for the unborn and for the mother? because that's what motivates God. Love for the unborn and for the mother. He does not put them in um, in tension and are in opposition to one another. God loves both of them. And as Christians, we owe it to ourselves and to those around us to examine ourselves and our motives on this issue. Second, to partner with God in the flourishing of life, we need to advocate for justice. Advocate for justice. The Bible compels us to take care of the poor, the oppressed, the widow, the stranger, and the orphans. 
Proverbs 31, 9 says, speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and needy. Our love for life cannot end at birth. Let me say that again. Our love for life cannot end at birth. We cannot be hypocrites. Our love for life must lead us to the, advocate, the advocacy of the flourishing of life from even before conception all the way through life to death. This is what God commands us to do. In Matthew 25, verses 35 through 36 and 39, Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Verse 39, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the, one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. The people we feed and give drink to and invite in and clothe and care for and visit are those previously unborn babies now grown up. We can't abandon them once they've been born. Jesus warns against placing burdens on people and not lifting a finger to help them. As the American church, we need to advocate as vigorously for health care and public education and child care and affordable housing and services to those as need. We need to be as vigorous for those things as we've been about abortion. We need to be advocates and on the front lines of fostering and adopting children. We need to demand equal pay for women and paid family leave for all. We need to fund mental health services and services for people with special needs. We have to demand a living wage for workers. And not just demand it from others, but to do it ourselves. To support and mentor young mothers and fathers to care for unwed mothers, to encourage men to be active, emotional, and physical support to their children. And parents and church members, if our daughters should come to us and tell us that they are pregnant, we cannot turn them away. We have to love them. We have to advocate for justice and we have to do justice so that we're not hypocrites, so that all people can flourish in this life. To aid in the flourishing of life, we need to examine ourselves, advocate for justice, and there's two more. Um, operate with compassion. Operate with compassion. Our theology may be correct, but if we act out of hatred or not in love, Paul says we are like noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. Jesus told us that the world will know who he is by how we love one another. We must have compassion for one another. We can't tarnish the witness of Jesus Christ in our zeal to have good theology. How is the love of Christ demonstrated when we threaten the lives of healthcare workers or shame or condone women, shame and condemn women who have had abortions? Will our shaming of an unwed mother or woman who's had an abortion bring them any closer to Jesus Christ? No, it won't. We know in our own lives how burdensome shame can be 
Why would we ever want to heap that on another person? What does compassion look like? It looks like the way of Jesus. In John 8, a group of Pharisees and teachers of the law bring a woman caught in adultery to Jesus, and they use her for their own agenda to try to trap Jesus. Would he stone her as the law commands? Jesus bends down, he begins writing, and he asks them, those who are without sin, cast the first stone. Not surprisingly, folks walk away. They didn't love her. They didn't care for her. They were using the law to shame her. They didn't even bother to bring along the man she was caught in adultery with. But thank God for Jesus. Look at John chapter 8, verses 7 through 11. John chapter 8, verses 7 through 11. When they kept on questioning him, meaning Jesus, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus names adultery as a sin, but he doesn't condemn her. In fact, he stands with her. When all of her accusers were gone, Jesus stands with her. Jesus is with her in probably one of the, mo- in the, one of the darkest moments of her life. Jesus is right there with her. To my sisters, my sisters, who have chosen to have an abortion, to those of you who were forced to have an abortion, I am so, so very sorry. I'm sorry for how the church has shamed and condemned you. I'm sorry that we haven't given you room to grieve. I'm sorry for how the church has used you in their political games. I'm sorry that we, the church, have not loved you properly. My dear sister, with everything in me, I want you to know that God loves you. And just as Jesus said to this woman, he says to you, neither do I condemn you. And to my brothers, those of you who suggested it, paid for it, I say to you what Jesus said to this woman, neither do I condemn you. Because the Bible is clear. There is only one unforgivable sin and this is not it. If you have sought forgiveness from God, know that God forgives you. Please forgive yourself. I want you to hear the words of scripture. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am convinced, and I hope and I pray that you are too, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, Neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God gives salvation. And that means that man can't undo it, and neither can you. You can't make God stop loving you. You simply don't have enough power to do it. As the body of Christ, we've got to love our brothers and sisters so much that they come to believe how much God loves them too. And as a church, we need to make space for our brothers and sisters to grieve and to share their stories as they feel led or as they need to. There is a type of grief called disenfranchised grief. It is a grief that is so unspeakable that we don't even talk about it. We can't acknowledge it, we can't mourn it publicly. A person who has had an abortion may experience disenfranchised grief because there's no place for them to share what happened and for them to grieve. My brothers and my sisters, I want you to know that the Metro Pastoral staff is here for you. We are here. We will gladly, gladly open up our hearts, our arms, our ears to hear from you. We are your safe space. And I hope that as a congregation, we continue to grow into that safe space for everyone. And finally, to aid in the flourishing of life, we must remember redemption. Remember redemption. God can redeem all things. Because nothing separates us from God's love, nothing stops God from redeeming even the sinful or broken places of our lives for his glory if we turn them over to him. We often forget that despite our choices, God can bring some good out of it. God is able to redeem good out of every situation. We can't forget this. And oftentimes, the source of our deepest pain is where God wants to use us the most. There is life after sexual assault. There is life after having been sinned against. And there is life, even if you've had an abortion, that does not stop you from God's grace, and it does not halt God's purposes for your life. The Bible is the story of God's activity in and through a whole bunch of deeply flawed, sinful people. From Adam and Eve to Abraham and David and Peter and Mary Magdalene and Paul, God specializes in using men and women who have a past, who have sinned, but have given themselves to Jesus Christ and received his grace. All of us. We are still useful to God's kingdom 
and we still have a purpose because we're all sinners. But we cannot be defined by our sin, nor can we allow the enemy to convince us that our sin is greater than God's grace and his hand of redemption. Your sin only has as much power as you give it once you have repented. God has forgiven you. He is the resurrected almighty God for a reason. He has already defeated the power of sin and death. Trust the power of God's salvation and his sacrifice. Peter was still the rock upon which Jesus built his church even after he denied Jesus. Paul was an apostle and he planted churches and he wrote most of the New Testament after he persecuted Christians. God has not counted you out. Don't count yourself out. And for the woman who chose not to have an abortion, your voice is so very important as well. When I first entered Divinity School, even before I stepped on campus, they had already you know, put us on the email list and we had started receiving these emails. And I can't remember if it was a daily or it was a weekly email, but Duke Divinity School used to do something called the joys and concerns. And the, you know, the joys were the celebrations, the concerns were the prayer requests. And one of the first emails I received was prayer for a woman named Dana. She was pregnant with a child knowing that he would only live at most a few hours after his birth. He had a rare condition. She and her husband had chosen to complete the pregnancy. She knew he was a boy. She had already given him a name. And I still remember that email from 13 years ago. I was amazed by her faith. I was inspired by her decision to trust God, even knowing the outcome. I was in awe of her strength to carry a baby to term, birth it, knowing that the date of her baby's birth would also be the date of his death. I don't know what I would have done in that situation. But I do know that I was grateful to be a part of a faith community that was willing to journey with her through it. And I remain grateful for her witness, her son's life, though short, was not in vain. He lives on in her, in her heart, but also in mine as well. He reminds me that God will give us beauty for ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. He reminds me that there is life after death, that there is hope after sorrow that God can and will redeem it all because he's just that good. That he loves all of his creation so much and he's so intimately involved in all of our lives that God can and will work all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. My brothers and my sisters, this is a difficult topic and it's not going to be resolved here or even after we talk later on. But God wants you to care about life, all of life. Amen. But he wants you to do it with love. Amen. Let us pray.
God, this topic is so heavy. And I pray like David in Psalm 61, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. God, we need your wisdom. We need your love. We need you to lead us to the way everlasting. God, I pray for my sister who may be pregnant, who may become pregnant and doesn't know what to do. God, I pray that you would remind her that you are with her. And I pray, God, that she would know that we are with her. God, I pray for my sister who may have chosen to have an abortion or had one forced upon her, God. And she's living with that shame and that guilt. God, in the name of Jesus, I bind up the spirit of self-condemnation. There is no condemnation in you, God. And so I lose freedom over your daughters. God, I pray for us as a church that you will continue to raise up ministries in this church. that work for the flourishing of life. For the unborn, all through life, God. And when they come home to meet you, God. God, I pray that we will come alongside of our moms and dads, our young people. And that we would be just a small glimpse, a small example of your presence in their lives. God, I pray that you would align our hearts with yours for the flourishing of life. And I pray, God, that you would wrap our theology up in love and compassion. I pray against division, but that even as this topic might divide the world, may it not divide this church. Draw us closer together in you, God, because we're just seeking to be faithful to you, God. 
We just want to be faithful. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.